This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Wednesday, February 7th. With car theft exploding in Canada, the federal government is hosting a summit to try to find solutions. We'll ask some of the attendees what changes they expect to see. Plus, the NDP draws a line in the sand. Pharmacare legislation by March 1st, where the confidence and supply deal with the Liberals could be off. The Power Panel discusses the possible repercussions. We begin in Ottawa on the eve of a national summit to combat auto theft. Just last hour, Public Safety Minister Dominique Leblanc made this announcement, calling it a first step to address the problem. Today, I'm pleased to announce an additional investment of $28 million to bolster the Canada Border Services Agency's ability to detect and search containers with stolen vehicles. The agency will explore new detection technology solutions and the use of advanced analytical tools such as artificial intelligence. Currently in Canada, a vehicle is stolen every five minutes. There has been a particularly sharp increase in the country's two biggest provinces in the last few years. With auto thefts up 48% in Ontario and by almost 58% in Quebec. Michael Kersner is the Ontario Solicitor General and he's set to participate in this summit and he joins me now. Minister, thanks uh, for joining us. Good to have you here. Nice to be here with you, David. Uh, you sent a letter uh, to Dominic Leblanc. I don't know if that's what shook the $28 million <laughs> from the federal government, but you're urging them to review the criminal code and do more at the ports where a lot of these cars are exported overseas. What specifically do you want to see the government do on those points? Well, David, we have a crisis. We have a crisis that somewhere uh, in Ontario, as you just showed in uh, your data, a car is stolen. It's completely unacceptable. And what we've been saying for a while is the federal government knows where the cars are going. It's not a great surprise. A lot of them are going through the Port of Montreal. And what we've said to uh, Monsieur LeBlanc is step it up at the port, provide the resources that are required, provide the uh, inspections that are required, and treat the outgoing inspection of cargo the same as you're treating the incoming inspection of cargo. So what, what sort of scale is required there? I know $28 million is a lot of money for normal people, and it's going to help with this, but it's not going to solve this. What sort of scale of effort do you want to see from Ottawa here? Well, David, I just want to say that our government, our government led by Premier Ford, has stepped up. We've invested over $160 million by providing auto theft grants, by providing bail compliance and warrant apprehension grants that will work, that will be available to the OPP, Municipal and First Nations Police Services throughout Ontario. And what we're saying is the federal government has to do their part. I don't know if the magic number, David, is $28 million or whatever, but the federal government knows exactly where the cars are going. I just came back. I'm in Ottawa now, David, and I had a day of meetings yesterday with my provincial counterparts from Quebec, and we had a detailed discussion. Everybody across Canada in the different levels of government with the provinces and territories knows the problem is at the port, and the government of Canada has to step it up. 
The, the problem is at the port, but the problem is also how they're finding ways to get into the vehicles, right? The intercepting of the radio signals off of keys, the manipulation of, of push-button starters. What do you want to see from manufacturers on, on that front? Because making cars harder to get into and get going in the first place seems like it would help. Well, David, our government is working collaboratively with these stakeholders, with the automakers, with the insurance companies, but we have a problem when somebody's home is broken into, mm -hmm. and we have it as an example in my own constituency, where homes are broken into violently and cars are being stolen, people feel scared. And the worst part is that we know the cars are going, in many cases, to the Port of Montreal. And it's completely unacceptable. We have a crisis. Our government has stepped up. Our government is doing not only the investments through the grants that I've mentioned, but also through the Ontario Police College, where we've expanded the number of people graduating from 1,400 to over 2,200. That's more boots on the ground. And our government takes public safety very seriously. You know, but Minister, and, and I'm not in any way minimizing any of those uh, incidents you've talked about there, but, but the analysis I've seen is that this is not sort of your standard street-level crime where, you know, someone just smashes a window and grabs a car. This is organized crime uh, taking advantage of a surge in demand for, for vehicles uh, because scarcity came out as a result of supply chain challenge, challenges from the pandemic, shipping it overseas to get cash to finance other operations. So it, it, it's sophisticated, right? And, and, and it's global in its scope. So how, what do you need to see come out of this summit beyond just dealing with the Port of Montreal to, to get a handle on this? Well, I think it goes to an expectation and a tone that we, I know we in Ontario and our government led by Premier Ford takes public safety very seriously. What we need to send a message all across Canada is that public safety matters. Public safety matters a lot. And wherever you are in Canada, you all have, just as we say in Ontario, this inherent right to live safely, to wake up your kids in the morning and to go to work and to come home at the end of the day and be able to be together safely. This is inherently ours, to have uh, these uh, acts of criminality uh, led by uh, people that wish us ill. It's something we're not going to tolerate. And I want to send another message out to people who feel it's okay to steal a car. We're going to find you, and we're going to lock you up. And, and the message is that Ontario and the other provinces because I've had a long, I've had a great opportunity, David, to speak with my other uh, provincial and territorial counterparts. Is that public safety matters, and we're calling on the federal government step it up. Okay, I, I get all of that, but but finding the people who stole the car. I mean, there's been a really low recovery rate of stolen vehicles in Ontario and in Quebec, precisely because they're going overseas, right? So it goes back to that challenge of that this is organized crime operating with a level of sophistication that has gotten ahead of law enforcement to this point. So, so what do you need to do at the municipal and provincial sort of policing level to get a handle on, on these organized uh, crime gangs that are behind this? Well, this goes to the $160 million investment that our government has made. Again, it goes to the uh, bail compliance and, uh, uh, and apprehension grant. And this money flows to the police services together with the auto theft grant so that they have additional personnel, they have additional resources to acquire the technology. And I have to say, uh, 
David, that our police services across the board in Ontario work very collaboratively together. There's a number of joint force operations that work together. There's a lot of sharing of information. And I've got great confidence in, in those that keep us safe. Uh, David, it's something that we are in a crisis in Ontario. We have put our foot down. Enough is enough. And I'm going to be uh, very vocal tomorrow at the table and say again loudly, the federal government knows where the cars are going. And it's about time that they put enough resources in place to help solve the problem in a jurisdiction that is theirs. No, and I get that. And the 28 million, I guess, is designed to to start towards that. But as you say, you don't really know what the scale would be. And I don't know if you'll get that full plan tomorrow. But in your letter to, to Minister LeBlanc, you urge the government to review the criminal code and consider treating vehicle theft for what it is, a serious crime. So are you looking for a change in the incarceration penalties uh, and bail conditions, these sorts of things, for people who steal cars? What specifically do you want to see there? Well, absolutely. There has to be consequences where we don't have what we have now. And that is if a person steals a car and is arrested and is held on remand and is released and steals a car again, this is the revolving door. We want to stop it. And the government should treat auto theft uh, very seriously. And there should be very, very serious consequences for doing this. And we will be advocating for that tomorrow as well. But what specifically, I guess, Minister, is it three-year sentences, five-year sentences, 18 months? Like, well, like, what is the proposal that you think stops this uh, flow of bad actors uh, who, who are stealing these cars? Well, I think what stops the flow is a commitment, uh, you know, on all different levels of government, the municipal level of government, the provincial levels and territorial levels of government and the federal government to come together. And I can tell you in speaking to my provincial and territorial uh, colleagues, they are absolutely in agreement that this type of criminality is totally, totally unacceptable. And in Ontario, we have put our money where our mouth is by providing the grants, by providing the tone, by providing the expectation, by working and having the police services, uh, the OPP municipal and First Nations police services work very collaboratively. It is an all of government approach. David, we take this matter very seriously. Okay. And, and, you know, the federal government has been criticized uh, by, by some people as not taking it seriously, but they would argue this summit is proof that they are taking it seriously. So just as a final point, Minister, what's, what's the top thing you want to see come out of this gathering tomorrow to send this signal, send this tone and specific measures uh, to deal with this problem? Well, uh, David, I've said it. Uh, I've said it in the legislature of Ontario. I, I said it seriously. You know, I invite uh, Minister LeBlanc and other uh, members of his government to meet me at the border to open up a sea container so we can see for ourselves. But what's important to understand is that the federal government must take responsibility for what is in their jurisdiction. I think tomorrow's summit will be helpful because we have all of uh, many stakeholders uh, there, uh, including the representatives from different provinces. And we will be very clear in our message to Minister LeBlanc. It's not just the $28 million. It's understanding that we have a serious problem at the Port of Montreal, at other ports, at rail yards. Put whatever resources are required. Treat the outbound containers the same as you treat the inbound containers. Mm. You've got the technology. 
put the protocols in place and let's stop this crisis and send a message to anyone who thinks it's okay to steal a car. It's not. We will find you and we will lock you up. Ontario Solicitor General Michael Kirshner, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David. Israel has firmly rejected the terms of a ceasefire proposal from Hamas. As Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says, there's no solution in this war except for Israel to win it. We are on the way to complete victory. The victory is achievable. It's not a matter of years or decades. It's a matter of months. Today marks four months of the Israel-Hamas war, and Hamas had proposed a ceasefire of four and a half months during which all hostages would go free and Israel would withdraw its troops from the Gaza Strip. But Netanyahu described the demands as crazy, though he didn't close the door on future negotiations. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the region trying to secure a resolution and to improve relations between Israel and neighboring countries. Dennis Horak is a former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and he joins me now. Um, so, Dennis, let, let's start. Israel has, has flatly rejected the ceasefire proposal, calling it a non-starter. What do you make of this rejection? Where does this leave things? I'm not really surprised, both by the substance and the politics in Israel. The substance, Israel, basically, from their perspective, they would they would see this as okay. They get their hostages back and the remains of their hostages. And other than that, everything reverts back to what it was on October the 6th plus uh, the number of Palestinian prisoners that would be released, including, as I understand it, about 500 who are doing extended sentences or life sentences even. Mm -hmm. So uh, as well as some concessions on Al-Aqsa, which are not really clear, that's in East Jerusalem, that's in Jerusalem. And so from the Israeli perspective, they're getting hostages that should never have been taken back and everything stays the same otherwise, except that Hamas gets rewarded, perhaps a bit weakened, but gets rewarded. So from their perspective, the substance of it is a problem. The domestic politics of it also are problematic for Netanyahu's coalition was clearly very opposed to this. Uh, I think there were threats that some would resign and that it would collapse. On the other side, though, you have a lot of demand, increasing demand, public demand in Israel for the return of the hostages right. and to, to make that the number one priority. So he's trying to balance that. So to have this rejected, I don't think is really overly surprising from the Israeli perspective. Right, and despite these untenable conditions for the Netanyahu uh, government, the Secretary of State Anthony Blinken leaving this sliver of hope that it does open up space for an agreement to be reached, right? But you've got Israel saying war can't end until Hamas is eradicated. So how do you find the space to negotiate with people you're trying to wipe off the face of the earth? You know what I mean? It, it seems like yeah. an impossible situation. It is, because one of the things Israel clearly doesn't want coming out of this is back to where they were before, which Hamas which had, which had Hamas in control of Gaza and a constant threat while they would spend perhaps the next couple of years rebuilding their the, the forces and their infrastructure and all of that. But on the other hand, you're right. You're, you, that's who you're negotiating with, and they're unlikely to negotiate their own disappearance from power. So it's a real challenge. Hopefully, I mean, it seems as if Blinken and others, Egypt and Qatar, are going to continue to try and press the negotiations, looking for additional compromises, although apparently Hamas has said, this is it, no compromise. I mean, that's what you say when you're negotiating. So hopefully there is still going to be a path to some sort of ceasefire, uh, some sort of humanitarian corridors, what, what have you, some additional hostage, some hostage releases, mm. etc. that this isn't the end. It's, 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 as you, as you say, it's hard to be optimistic, but uh, at least the negotiations are still ongoing, or at least hopefully they are.
Well, we have seen hostages exchanged for people in Israeli prisons in the past. So there is precedent uh, of something like that happening. The, the more intractable issue to my amateur analysis is that Israel completely withdraw from Gaza, especially based on what Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, that Israel needs a security control situation of the Gaza Strip, even after this conflict is over. And Saudi Arabia has now weighed in on this saying that uh, it will not normalize relations with Israel until they're out of Gaza and there's a two-state solution um, based on the 1967 borders, uh, which seems problematic. Because remember, very early in October, when we talked about the motivation in Hamas doing this, it was, it was people theorized that it was to derail the normalization of relations between Israel and other countries like Saudi Arabia. So ha- has it been mission accomplished on that front based on what Saudi Arabia has done here for Hamas? No, I don't think so. I think uh, ultimately, you're right. Hamas has said, or, or, or sort of Netanyahu said, that they want to remain in Gaza. I don't think the Israelis, they, certainly the Israeli military and others, want to remain in Gaza over the longer term. Maybe there will be some sort of buffer, uh, perhaps other forces, some sort of security force from the Palestinian Authority or something. I, I don't think that that's their long-term goal, regardless of what's being said at this point. Um, in terms of Saudi They've long maintained uh, that the res- some resolution of the Palestinian issue was going was a was a prerequisite to any sort of normalization with Israel. It's it's partly why they stayed out of the whole Abraham Accords, which had Bahrain and UAE normalized relations. So they've reiterated that uh, yesterday, a bit bit more specific in what it is that they're looking for in terms of a longer term solution to the issue. And I think ultimately that's where the Israelis are going to end up. They don't. They remember what Gaza was like before. That's why they left in 2005, I believe it was. They don't want to stay there longer term. There will be have, have to be some sort of security arrangements, particularly if, if, if Hamas remains in control, which seems likely, uh, at least in the, the immediate aftermath. So there, there may be some other sorts of security mechanisms that get in place, but I don't think that the Israelis want to stay there over the longer term. Well, what, what do you think you, they want there, Dennis? Because, like, you, you know, maybe they don't want to go back to the occupation, you know, the, the official occupation of Gaza. Um, but Netanyahu ruling out two-state solution, talking about security control over that territory. I mean, that implies some sort of presence or unfettered access, you know, and, and a major level of control in contested space, right? What, what do you think they want sort of the day after this conflict sort of uh, de-escalates if it gets to that point? Yeah, I'm not sure they really know at this point. We're really we're only four months removed from October seventh, and the emotions are still running very high. And the idea of going back to October sixth, where where Hamas was there, rockets were fired occasionally, and there would be these flare-ups every couple of years or every several months. That that, that status quo ante is untenable, and I think that's probably true. But where they want this to go in terms of a longer, long-term solution, a two-state solution, Netanyahu and the, 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 the right of Israel, the right-wing uh, parties in Israel, uh, some of the religious parties, don't want that. That's for sure. But whether that will be Israeli public opinion, the sentiment of Israeli public opinion going forward, whether there's a new government going forward, I think ultimately there is going to be a realization that the only way to have a lasting peace is to have a lasting solution to the Palestinian issues. And that's going to take some time, you know, four months after what is still a very traumatic situation for the Israelis. And also it has to be said for the Palestinians now as well, the idea of of this sort of 
you know, coexistence in two states, it seems so far away. But ultimately, I think that's ultimately where it has to circle back to. Right. So Hamas officials re- report uh, sending a delegation to Cairo for, for peace talks with Egypt and Qatar. Meanwhile, Anthony Blinken continues to sort of geopolitical firefighting uh, in the region. The, the U.S. has continued to voice discomfort with how things are going there, but not necessarily visibly able to move Israel closer um, to, to any kind of a, a peace situation here. I mean, well, what, 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 do we, what can we surmise about the U.S.'s influence on this conflict uh, four months in? Well, I think it can be overstated. You know, the Israeli, the U.S. government doesn't control Israel, and they're responding to what was a was a horrendous attack, and and now they have the, their hostages. And so, they, while they likely welcome, um, certainly, certainly, certainly welcome U.S. efforts to try and mediate with with other partners in the region, Cairo, as you mentioned, or Egypt, as you mentioned, and and Qatar. Um, that, that the U.S. only has a limited amount of influence mm-hmm. over them, that that there is a lot of American sympathy for what happened and then the need for the Israelis to do something in response, a recognition that they needed to do something in response. They're absolutely, as you said, they're uncomfortable with, with, with the way some of this response has actually played out and how it's continuing and, and the death toll on the other side. I think all of us in the world are, 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 are shocked by it. So it's trying to find that, that middle ground and trying to move the Israelis uh, onto a different track, as we've seen with with these efforts at negotiations, while at the same time recognizing that they have legitimate security concerns and trying to to sort of thread that needle and trying to to try and move the Israelis down a track that will lead to a much longer term settlement is right. is something I think the Americans probably beyond anybody else. Uh, are able to do or having had those conversations with Israel, the Europeans perhaps as well, but not not nearly as, as as significant. So it's 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 going to be a challenge. But you know the Israelis are it's an independent government. A, they will act in what they see as their own interests. There are divisions within Israel between this current government and others in Israel about future directions, and that's going to have to play out in Israeli politics. So uh, we'll see where it goes. All right, Dennis, always appreciate the time. Dennis Horak, former Canadian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says he's putting the prime minister on notice over the pharmacare legislation promised in their supply and confidence deal. We are very serious that pharmacare has to be delivered. We need to see legislation and some additional steps. And I made that very clear to the Prime Minister. I put him on notice that we expect that by March 1st. If not, there will be repercussions. Okay, Singh would not explicitly say what those repercussions uh, would be, but he has said this week that he could end the support agreement with the Liberals. So will the two sides cut a deal by the March 1st deadline? The power panel on that. Amanda Alvaro is a former Liberal Party communication strategist and here with me in Ottawa. Tim Powers, a former strategist for conservative parties. Sherelle Evelyn is managing editor of The Hill Times. And Matthew Dubay is a former NDP MP. Okay, so Matthew, uh, we have heard Jagmeet Singh kind of... (laughs) bluster a bit about ending the deal, but he's never had a specific date and a threat of repercussions and said he said it to the prime minister's face. How should we interpret it this time? Is this time for real? Having a date is helpful for sure. Um, it, I'm, look, I'm not going to lie. I think it's challenging from a negotiation perspective when, you know, if you're constantly threatening to pull the plug. But that being said, I do think it's important signal to send to caucus, to the party membership. And I do think one one thing we don't talk enough about overall uh, across the board is 
the different ways this can play out. Like, if the agreement ends, it's not an election tomorrow morning. The, right. What it means is vote that... Vote by vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's, that's important when we talk about repercussions. Does it mean things won't go as smoothly in committees, for example, where the NDP is, is on, on the hook with the agreement to offer a, a fair level of support to the Liberals for different things that happen at the committee level, right? There's, there's different ways you can navigate that in different ways where we don't immediately fall into an election, but where the screws can be tightened. And so I would expect that that's, that's what's being explored here. But it is, there is definitely a level of frustration, I think, you know, in, internally that, that he needs to speak to as leader, which is that this, this is, our, I think, the marquee piece for a lot of new Democrats in the agreement. And it's the one thing that hasn't been able to go across the finish line. And there's a bunch of reasons, which I suspect we'll get into why that's the case. But uh, the, you do need to insist on that. And I think uh, time's running out. So, Sherelle, as I was watching this today, uh, I tweeted, like, oh, he's put a date on the table. Oh, he's put repercussions on the table. And then the cynic in me said, oh, maybe he absolutely knows he's going to get a deal mm-hmm. by March 1st. He's going to get the legislation. So it's easy to sort of take this sort of position now. Yeah, that is definitely one way you could, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. could look at it. And, I like that. Yeah, to say that, oh, you know, I really, really held their feet to the fire and look at what we achieved. I mean, to be, to be fair to uh, the NDP and, and Mr. Singh, they have accomplished a fair deal throughout the supply yeah. confidence agreement. Yeah. They have gotten things that would never have gotten across the finish line had it not been for that. Um, I know they have difficulty in actually, you know, letting the rest of the country know about that and, and you know, getting the uh, the accolades, if you will, for that, as opposed to the Liberals taking the, taking the win. But they have been doing that work. And to Mr. Singh's point to this, to the, at this far, he's been saying the reason that we're still in this is because it's not about power, it's not about prestige, it's about getting help for the Canadians that they need. Um, however, there has to be, you have to draw a line under it somewhere. Um, you cannot keep, you know, getting taken for a ride on what is supposed to be, you know, one of the real uh, flagship pieces of this deal. Right. So you can't go back to your supporters and say, you know, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. That just doesn't work mm-hmm. after, you know, so many years. So to to Matthew's point, yes, it doesn't mean that we're going into an election. I mean, the, the party uh, 2023 fundraising numbers came out recently. It's not like the NDP are in, you know, a position to compete with the, you know, $35 million that the Conservatives raised. If no. we had to go to... More to than the Liberals and the NDP combined. Exactly. Um, The polling isn't in anybody's favor. There, you know, it would be vote by vote. Um, You don't need a supply and confidence agreement for to avoid an election, but you would say, okay, you know what, this didn't happen. And I also just want to raise. I mean, for the Liberals, they could theoretically give the NDP what they're looking for because it's just because you've tabled this bill doesn't mean that this pharmacare. plan is going to roll out as uh, everybody wants it to because they still have to go to the provinces and the provinces are the ones yeah. who and, and they don't want what Jugmeet's uh, demanding. They don't want right? it. This is the challenge. Like Jugmeet Singh has a very specific vision of pharmacare that most provinces say they don't want. It's too expensive and yeah. you know. From so the get go they've been saying they want to be able to opt out of this deal. Yeah. They want any deal to be voluntary so it's not like it's going to happen tomorrow it's regardless of how much money is you know benchmarked in whatever legislation. So, so Tim on, on this you know this uh, I told the Prime Minister there will be repercussions. You know, back when I was going to see Star Wars, the original, in the theaters, we discussed last segment, I was also <laughs> reading stories like Chicken Little. And, and there's only so many times yes. you can say the sky is falling, right? And, and, and you know, this, at some point, if he's going to keep doing this, 
he ha- there has to be an actual consequence. Does there not? Because, or, 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 does, or can he just keep doing this uh, uh, forever? Uh, does it, it's, may, maybe it's a, more the case of Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, where's the wolf? Uh, and and does, who cares if she gets eaten in the end in that case, as opposed to the skies falling? But th- this is more akin to me of, it's like the Jagmeet Singh reminding the Prime Minister, oh, by the way, one partner, Valentine's is next week. And if you don't get me chocolates, I'm not going to be very happy. But guess what? We'll stay together anyway, whether I get the chocolates or not. Like, it is irrelevant at this juncture because, as Matthew and Shirella both outlined, if he, if he keeps the deal or doesn't keep the deal, it's not going to have any material impact on anything right now. Uh, and it's not in our interests right now, neither parties, to go to the electorate. I suppose, and Matthew would know this better than I, Mr. Singh feels he needs to potentially set up your cynical idea of March the 1st in hopes that when a pharmacare agreement comes, he can take some credit for that and put that in the bank later on. Because the problem Mr. Singh is going to ha- have whenever this ends is, and the liberals are very good at this, trying to keep the credit for the things he did achieve. Because they're going to be scooped up and sold and sure. packaged by the Liberal Party. Maybe this is his way of trying to show relevance without actually uh, uttering anything that's going to do anything substantive. But, but, but Amanda, is it really it wouldn't change anything? I mean, the Liberals are trying to save their political bacon right now. And, and if they have to go back to vote by vote and the drama we saw in the early days of the minority parliament during the pandemic, they're going to be spending mm-hmm. all of their time in the House of Commons with no ability to be guaranteed to have a, a partner in a mm-hmm. confidence motion and even less ability to get out, connect with Canadians and sell their message. So, like, it, it doesn't necessarily mean an election tomorrow, but it, it pins in the liberals mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think they are right now. Okay, well, first of all, David, the story is the boy who cried wolf. Yes. That's the story. That's the one, right? And that's exactly what it sounds like. And what, what we're finding is Mr. Singh is going to start to lose credibility. We have read this story before where he makes these threats or quasi-threats and then ends up taking credit when the government delivers. This is a relevancy play. This mm-hmm. is about making a headline, having the spotlight on him, making sure that he gets credit for whenever it comes. But an issue that I will, so two things that I will mention. One is that he also, I think with the same Globe reporters said, this doesn't necessarily mean that he wouldn't back the Liberals in a confidence vote or around budget uh, with or without a deal. So does this mean, you know, the uh, an election right away? Absolutely not. These are idle threats that help drive their narrative and agenda. The one other thing that I will point out though, as you'll recall, the deadline originally was the end of 2023. It got extended until March 1st. At the same time that that deadline got extended, we saw a big study come out and looked at how Canadians felt about certain healthcare issues. They were asked to pick their top two. Only 18% chose universal single-payer plan. Things like reducing surgical wait times, mental health uh, reforms, looking at funding for long-term care, all significantly higher. So how much is this really going to affect the Liberals should they push past that March 1st deadline, knowing that Canadians, maybe there isn't quite the same spotlight on this issue right now? So, so Matthew, you know, Amanda calls it a relevancy play. 
has this been working for either one of those parties uh, politically, do you think? I mean, beyond, you know, the stability in a minority parliament, Amanda Galbraith, who's on the show Monday night, said they've just lashed themselves to each other and they've both been sinking ever since uh, they signed on to the supply and confidence agreement and, and allowing the conservatives to sort of set the agenda for them. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge, you know, we talked a little bit about selling the policies, but I think the biggest challenge is that unlike an actual coalition, despite those who refer to it as such, it is not. Yeah. And an actual coalition, you have seats at the cabinet table, right? You have something that I think the public understands better, with all due respect to the public. Is Whereas here, it's a bit more challenging, the, the cut and thrust of the sort of the backroom negotiations, uh, the power and the politics, if you will, that happened back, you know, mm-hmm. behind the curtain. It's a bit harder to explain how that works. And you know, you experience it as an MP. The, the amount of times I would go back to my constituents and explain, I'm having this conversation with the minister about issue X, it's just right over people's heads. Mm-hmm. Because unless they've been in that position where you have to have those conversations, it's, it's the same as any type of negotiation. If you've never been in a union or as an employer at that table, you don't get it when you're seeing the headlines about offers being made and that sort of thing. And so... I think that's the biggest challenge right now is is understanding the arrangement, but also how it reflects to your point about the agenda setting, the ability to then after go out and, and ask questions, right? To be in question period and criticizing the government. I think people don't aren't aren't understanding that distinction and it does pose a challenge for the NDP because I think there's a lot of legitimate criticism and I think in the terms that are set here, Jagmeet's done it well, but it hasn't been understood as something that he's still able to do while also getting these policy gains. But, but you know, Sherelle, just to, to the public, you know, I don't know how close they are following this particular thing, but it's he's standing up in question period all the time talking about how disappointed he is in his government and how awful they are for ordinary <laughs> Canadians, but I have no choice but to continue to support you for another 18 months. Uh, you know, I, I, it's like, I, I just wonder with sort of the, you know, I, I don't know if it's a threat today or what it is today, but if, 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 that, if this is not working for them politically, no matter what, it's delivering on a policy level. Yes, it's delivering on a policy level. It's deliver- like I said, Jagmeet Singh has said, you know what, we're getting people help that they need. That's something that he says often. So regardless of, you know, if it ultimately helps them in the polls, regardless of people's view them as, you know, just getting dragged down with the Liberals, you know, you, you get the sense that, or at least the sense he's trying to give, is that, you know, he goes to sleep with a smile on his face. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, but it's definitely... it definitely sets up for a difficult political message when uh, you're, you're, like you said, you're, you're standing up and saying how much you're in opposition to this government while at the same time yeah. helping them along the way. Okay. Well, March 1st is a Friday. We're going to get a countdown clock. And have <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. There. All right. I want to thank you, gang, so much. Sherelle Evelyn, Matthew Dubé, Tim Powers, and Amanda Alvaro. Thanks, gang. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.